I'm excited to have Afarn Famili on the Data Dive podcast. Afarn was a data science researcher at UT Southwestern and now works as a data scientist at PwC. Welcome to the Data Dive podcast, Afarn. I'm glad to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me, Abraham. Tell me a little bit about what sparked your interest in data science and what led you to be in the current role you're in now as a data scientist at PwC. Sure. It all started in high school. I, I just loved mathematics and um, solving problems. It was just like a game for me to, to solve integrals, derivatives, understand them, and even teach my, my friends in school. Before the exams, I would just enjoy doing that. And it just all grew into my undergrad, which was computer science and uh, developing algorithms. And then, of course, in my uh, graduate studies, which was biomedical engineering, but it was basically the applications of, you know, mathematics, machine learning and data science in healthcare and radiology, biology. So the the love for mathematics and problem solving, I guess, was key for me to lead me here. How do you think your background as a researcher has strengthened your ability to be a data scientist? So I would say some jobs require you to be a lifelong learner and learning never stops. And I would say in technology in general, whoever is in technology, they just need to be a constant learner. They, you know, like the only constant in our field is change. So if you just want to settle on one thing that you have learned and just you know keep trying that, you just realize that, oh, well, you're behind. You know, there are a number of things that uh, can do better. So, of course, research and learning needs to be a part of our jobs day to day. You need to you know, just research what is the state of the art, technology, what is going on, you know, how can I make my model better? How can I collect better data? How can I learn better from my data? What are others doing? And I would say that's that's what I did in my research as a graduate student. And that helped me a lot. And is actually helping me a lot during my career at right now, PwC. You work to apply data science in the radiology realm for quite some time. So talk to me a bit about how you selected quality data for your projects and how important data science and AI were to quantifying imaging data. Uh, Sure. Yes. So I'm sure you've heard of the phrase garbage in, garbage out. (laughs) So um, of course, it it applies in, in different domains as well. You just want to make sure you collect quality data. And it's very difficult, especially in a, in a subtle field like radiology, especially neuroradiology, where you deal with your human brain. So it's not easy to, to just sit down. Okay. I just want to study what happens to, uh, let's say, epilepsy patients uh, when they undergo seizure. You know, it's, it's just not that easy. You just need to go through a lot of things. Of course, you need to work with doctors, medical doctors, neurologists, neurosurgeons, and it's not easy to collect uh, data if you want to do a study. So 
During my master's thesis, I was very fortunate and honored to work at UT Southwestern, which is a medical facility in Dallas, Texas, and worked uh, with a neurosurgeon in neurosurgery department. And he was doing an experiment with some epilepsy patients while he was trying to localizing the seizure onset in their brains. So before they were going through a surgery to remove the brain lesion that was causing the surgery, he would put in some probes on the patient's scalps to record electrical activity of the brain. And he was also interested in memory encoding of the patients. Okay, if a patient is suffering from epilepsy, does it affect their memory encoding as well? Or how does it affect it? So that's 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 the study we did. We did. We wanted to realize how does successful versus unsuccessful memory encoding happens for for epilepsy patients. As you could probably guess, it was like a binary supervised learning uh, classification task that we were just tasked with understanding the patient's memory and which region of the brain was actually. Um, responsible for forming a kind of memory. And it was a very interesting project. And, uh, you know, we, it, it was like a, it was like our research somehow overlapped with the neurosurgeon's research. And we were lucky enough to have quality data. And of course, we made sure the raw data was cleaned up because that's a very important uh, step. And I'm going to talk about it in next questions as well. Uh, if we uh, happen to talk about it, uh, this is one of the most important steps in, uh, in, in a modeling task. You just want to sharpen your saw. You just want to, um, spend like 80% of your time cleaning up your data and then pass it on for the modeling piece or the algorithm development. Do you think data-driven solutions will develop to the point where they will allow radiologists to detect disease directly based on an image or a set of images? So uh, it's interesting you asked that question. I attended a talk. It was a very interesting presentation where he actually started the presentation by emails from radiology students that they were scared that, hey, are machines going to replace us in the future? Like, I am spending so much money on my education. I'm going to be in at least half a million debt by the time I graduate. And by the time I graduate, am I just going to re be replaced by some robot or machine? I'm, I need to make a decision right now, <laughs> sooner than later. And the answer of that radiologist was, we at least have another 30 years to get there. And he was not even confident in saying that it's going to happen. Maybe even later, it might not even happen because as you probably know, human intervention needs to be there. We need to be there to make sure machines don't make mistakes because the mistakes can cost a lot <laughs> and we can't afford that. So uh, in any machine learning model or application, there needs to be a a layer of human supervision that controls the quality of the, the machines or what they they output. You also have worked at a medical technology company where you perform statistical methods. So how did you ensure that the predictive analytics that you developed could be scaled across many patients and not just a certain subset of the population? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. 
So the medical device company I worked at, the technology was based on photopelphysmogram, which is a signal that gets emitted to your your skin and works based on the, the change in the volume of the blood. That's how it, you know, the signal gets measured and then some vital signs can be derived from uh, measuring that signal. Um, so we're measuring a number of vital signs like uh, oxygen saturation, blood pressure, res- respiration rate. And one major challenge we had was with subjects with darker uh, skin color, darker pig- pigmentation. And it was working for some vitals like oxygen saturation, but it was a major challenge for us with like a vital sign like blood pressure or respiration rate. So we had a difficulty passing trials, medical trials, you know, like with blood pressure, but for oxygen saturation, it was pretty straightforward. So I would say, yeah, the edge cases are there. Uh, it's real world problems, challenges arise, and we all need to figure out ways to tackle them and solve them. What areas do you think are the best to focus on to allow companies to make the most effective data-driven solutions? I would say the first, the very first step in proposing any solution, whether it be in data science field or any other field, is to understand the problem first. So it's by clearly defining the the problem and framing it that we, we go a long way. So we understand it and then we aim at gathering data, gathering the required data that can potentially answer the question and just keep, you know, just learning from the data and trying to, uh, let's say, model it in a way that can potentially, you know, narrow down the analysis to answer the question. What do you do to ensure that the models you develop at PwC are able to extract the correct information from the data that is inputted? Sure. So the majority of work that I am involved in at PwC is natural language processing or NLP. And a part of that, uh, like a subset of that is extracting information from different contracts. So, of course, you can have one model that's built in-house or um, let's say you can leverage other other third-party models for extracting data, extracting information from your, your agreements. But the challenge here is that the data you want to extract from one kind of document or contract could be completely different than what you want to extract from in the contract. So the challenge here needs to be addressed by having customized models for each problem set. And the way we do it, we we have an in-house algorithm that we can customize to each use case. For example, if we want to extract information from, let's say, lease agreements, the algorithm is different and is made for those kind of agreements as opposed to a model that's wa- that wants to extract information from purchase agreements. The model is, is made for that, is customized to that kind of agreement. So in order to, you know, make sure your, your model is extracting the right type of information it needs to be customized to each use case. 
How is it different using data directly from PwC for your models opposed to you know third-party sources? How does this like affect your job? Does it make it harder? Does it make it easier? Do you have to be more cautious with the data you use? Um, that's another good question. So I would say having a model that's developed in-house has some advantages. And that is, and of course, it has some disadvantages as well when you want to start from scratch. You don't know where to start from. So the advantages are number one, the cost, of course. You, you just build something that you don't need to, you know, pay for another third party application to do the same job. And the second advantage is the fact that you can make changes to the source code based on your needs. So one third party application that I buy for exact information from, you know, different kind of agreements. If I want to make a change, uh, make it customized to my use case, I, I might have a hard time doing that because I don't have access to the source code. That cannot be the case for me if I want to make it customizable as opposed to where I own the, uh, the code base. I can make changes wherever necessary and, and just go from there. How do you work to ensure that the data science and AI models that you develop can be, you know, accessible to anyone in a company or on a specific team? So I would answer that, that question in, um, in two parts. So I would say for the first part, there, we have actually two different kinds of clients, let's say, or, or work, or two different kinds of deliverables. So for the first type, you, you're asked by the stakeholder to do some sort of analysis and provide them with the results. All they care for is, uh, is a report of the data or let's say the extracted information or the, let's say the visualization of the data you analyze for them. So they're given the analysis that you did or the results of the models. That's all they care about. They stop at this point. And if they need any future analysis, they will provide you with the data and they will ask for your response, what you learned from the data, was your analysis, was the result, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, clients number two, the kind of clients that would want to actually interact with the model. So for those clients, you need to have an application. Either you integrate your model as a part of like a system that has a user interface where users can upload whatever they, data they want. And let's say your models, your model basically does its analysis and provides the user with the results that they can download on uh, their local machines or wherever they want. So in that scenario, you need to deploy your model, you know, to work as a part of a system or your model can be standalone. There are different libraries in Python itself that are built for, you know, deploying applications. And um, they basically have a UI that you can leverage and uh, plug your model in their backend and you're, you're all good to go. You just provide the, the user with with an API link and they can just call the API, interact with the model and get the results they want. 
How valuable is having a data science team filled with people who specialize in different areas? And how do you ensure that everyone can successfully utilize their skills to create the most effective models? So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to quote another a successful lady in product management that I had the opportunity to listen to a couple of weeks ago. She had a talk that I, I listened to. Her name is Lisa Sam, and she's a product manager. She mentioned, she brought up the fact that in order for any team to be successful, they need to have three categories of people. Number one, thinkers. Thinkers, as you can say, are people who are creative or problem solvers. They come up with brilliant ideas based on their knowledge and they think in systems. They think, you know, like how different pieces connect together, just big picture. And second group of people are deep experts, people that can dive deep into the problem, spend days and nights, you know, just going through the algorithm, even let's say, for the sake of the conversation, let's say like a very complicated deep learning model, uh, like an RNN or let's say LSTM, or if you're familiar with it, but you know, they just sit down and go through the mathematics, try to understand which parameter comes from where, and then what if I tweak it? You know, they just go into the, the details as much as they can. The third group of people are the stitchers. And these are the, the people that are sometimes missed from, from the teams. And these people are people that grab information from different teams, different parts of the organization, and then they just stitch them, put them all together. And if you have a stitcher on the team, you can learn about what others are doing in their teams. And maybe you can borrow what they are working on so you, so you don't duplicate the work. Or maybe you can let others learn what you have developed and worked on. Or maybe you can, you know, borrow a component of your workflow from a, from a different team. So I would say all three groups of people are very key and important for any team, not only uh, data science teams, but also uh, like DevOps, MLOps, uh, software engineering, any, anything, any team you can think of. When you are working with people who may have a limited knowledge of data science, how do you accommodate them into your projects and allow them to utilize their unique skills to provide value? Yeah, depending on their skill set, of course, they can, they can definitely fit in. And, you know, some people have a strong business background. You know, they understand the business really well. And we all know that a very important step in uh, any successful data science project is understanding, like have a general understanding of the domain itself. So like a knowledge base. So maybe someone who has a strong uh, business background, not necessarily a data science or coding or, you know, like logical background, they can, they can definitely be of, be helpful to the team and bring value to it. What are some valuable data science skills that are often overlooked? I would say exploratory data analysis <laughs> sometimes doesn't get as much attention as it's supposed to. We tend to dive into the modeling aspect of things as opposed to spending more time on 
understanding the data, cleaning it up, and make it proper for the models. So as the saying goes, and I mentioned it earlier, I think Einstein even has a famous quote on this, that if you want to solve a problem, make sure you spend 80% of the time, of your time in sharpening the saw and then the rest 20% on the actual, uh, you know, actual work. Because once you're prepared, once your data is ready, that's when you can, um, you know, have a, have a proper model. Another thing that get, that can sometimes get overlooked in our field is the foundations of software engineering. I would say this is going to be a game changer if you have some basic knowledge of software engineering, because as we addressed a little earlier, your model needs to be deployed in along with other applications. And you just want to make sure you know how your model or your piece is going to work with other pieces. And in order to do that, you need to understand, let's say, you know, how networks work, how, you know, different architectures work together, you know, all of this can, can come in handy and can help you a lot during your uh, data science career. I would say as far as skills are concerned, Git and GitHub, knowledge of Git and GitHub, collaborating with others and, uh, you know, pull requests and uh, making branches, all of that. If you want to get into the practice of doing that, uh, that that would be that would be a game changer as well. What are some of the largest issues or challenges that data scientists currently face, and how do you address these problems? I would say one very well known uh, challenge for data scientists is having not enough data. <laughs> I know this is a cliche answer, but uh, it is <laughs> it is the truth. You know, you don't necessarily have the required amount of data uh, to train your model. And it makes sense if you think of the real world as well. You know, we all need experience. We we get better at what we learn and what we do and, uh, you know, perform better as we are more experienced and, you know, have gained more data. But, you know, we can maybe take a shortcut here. Some people are so, so more successful than some others, although they're on the same age and they're in the same class because maybe they're they're working a little smarter maybe they they focus on what is actually important so if we think of machine learning ter- terms or modeling terms having proper features engineering the features that are related to your use case and maybe constructing uh like more explanatory, more related features can help your model learn better from the limited amount of data you have because it's it cannot be viable to collect uh you know so much data for your specific use case. For example, in the in the example I brought up earlier, the the epilepsy patients, the neurosurgeon, you know, had specific number of patients that he was working on. I can't ask him to, you know, hire more patients and, you know, cut through their brains so that I can have my models work better. I have limited data that I need to learn to work on. And I just think of better ways to construct better features that I can have my model learn better from them. How do you see data science evolving both in the business and healthcare fields? I would say 
I'll rely on Harvard Business Review for this. Companies that use data to make actionable insights are 23 times more likely to acquire more customers and 19 times more profitable. So it is definitely a growing field and uh, data scientists, machine learning engineers, data engineers, MLOps, they're all in demand. And this is something that just keeps growing. And the companies that leverage the power of data are just more successful. And it is the truth. Thank you for coming on to the Data Dive podcast, Tafarn. I loved hearing about your data-driven radiology research at UT Southwestern and about your current data science work at PwC. If you like this podcast, make sure to follow us on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, and stay tuned for more Data Dive podcast episodes like this one. Yeah, thank you for being a great host. I, it was it was a pleasure speaking with you.